You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I will be your co-host, Shane. And today we are talking about something for which dozens of books, songs, poems, movies, works of art, and even courtroom defenses, prosecutions, laws, and businesses are dedicated to. (sighs) We're talking about specific ideas that people have formed about human nature and what it is. Kind of like they talk about in the Michael Jackson song, Human Nature. Exactly right. This is even mostly this is an episode about the Michael Jackson song. Yeah, but pre-controversy Michael Jackson. I don't know. Was there ever a time that Michael Jackson was not controversial? Probably when he was like in the Jackson 5. I think even that was still like a whole thing. Maybe when he was an infant then? <laughs> yeah, baby Michael Jackson was was pure of soul. <laughs> Good old babies. <laughs> oh, babies. Being pure of soul. Having no human nature yet. Calling back to our episode on evil babies. That's right. (laughs) Go check that one out on Evil Babies. So anyway, what's interesting about this topic when we were doing research for this is essentially everywhere that you look, it's just a bunch of examples. I mean, there are obviously places that discuss it in maybe a more philosophical or more in-depth way, but there's a bunch of people claiming to know or have a list of examples of what defines humans and human nature and that sort of thing. And so it was a work in interpretation to extrapolate from those discussions, those examples, what it means to even talk about human nature and what human nature therefore is and how to make sense of those examples when we have a definition of it. So it's just a concept that is very nebulous and sort of squishy. Let's let's put it that way. It's squishy. We're going to do our best to kind of talk about what this is. Like we're going to try to provide as much of an overview as we can kind of in regard to the range of what's talked about within human nature to the general idea of what human nature is, maybe the idea of human nature setting us apart from animals, whatever that means. We're going to try to explore that a little bit, maybe unpack some of that stuff and hopefully get to some kind of answer around the idea of what is human nature and how do we know what human nature is? Or how would we know like what an example of human nature, whether that actually fits into that category too? And so, yeah, like the discussions that we found range from something as specific as human nature is like, it's human nature to set rules and follow those rules is like a very specific example of human nature up to something really general, like human nature is what sets us apart from the animals, as you had mentioned earlier. And so we'll try and unpack the implications of this. And I think we can start by giving a very generic definition that is provided by the dictionary, by dictionary.com specifically. But I did find this across various sources that really follow the same sort of format. Yeah. So the definition that dictionary.com does provide is, quote, the general psychological characteristics, feelings, and behavioral traits regarded as being shared by all humans, end quote. And that really does encompass the majority of this discussion as we're sort of saying, what is universal about humans? Although, interestingly, again, this conversation about human nature, it doesn't, it's not isolated to that. So, a lot of philosophers, this is kind of what they do, like, arguing about human nature is very well in the wheelhouse of <laughs> what philosophers were mostly up to. You might even argue that that was pretty much all that they talked about. And so, they have debated what is human nature as one of their favorite points of discussion. And to this point, 
David Hume, who was one of my favorite philosophers, even argued that, quote, the science of man is the only solid foundation for the other sciences. All the other sciences have a relation greater or lesser to human nature, end quote. And this is from his book, Treatise on Human Nature. Yeah. And so what you'll see within this, too, is that all of these folks seem to use human nature to suggest that there's a, you know, some kind of statement about humans that's either true of 100 percent of people or is generally true of all people. So it is, you know, as we start talking about human nature, it is a sweeping generalization of how do we characterize and how do we classify what is human using this phrase or this term or this thought about this idea of human nature. And so just as an example of a statement that I found I saw one that said, it's human nature to form tribes and label outsiders. So that is one of those examples of this is a generalization that they are arguing broadly applies to most people, not even that it applies to all people. Whereas I think someone could very easily argue, well, if it doesn't apply to all humans, then it is not human nature because Otherwise, all humans would do it. And I don't know what exactly the counter argument would be, except to say that, like, well, really, most people would do this given the opportunity to do so or something along those lines. And so just trying to, to see it from both sides. But that seems to be how most people talk about it. And so the discussion around it can be that human nature is in regards to either the behaviors, attitudes, oddities of humans or predilections of humans. So when I think of oddities, I just think of like the 1920s with some of the freak shows that would go around, like quote unquote freak shows that were described or like Barnum and Bailey, where like, that's what I think of the oddities, which is also the name of a wrestling stable for a little bit. There were a group of like misfit wrestlers that were kind of circus themed. I did not know that. Yeah, it's a whole thing. I don't know. When I hear that word, because I don't hear that word very often, but when I do, that's what I think of. So now what's interesting about this, though, when we start talking about kind of human nature and all these things, there are a couple different ways that people discuss it. One of the ways they do is they warn people that it's something that humans need to overcome, right? So like, you know, maybe they talk about human beings being aggressive by nature, right? Like, you know, territorial by nature. So we have to overcome that to be a higher society or something along those lines. You'll see like, you know, we have to get above our base animal instincts to achieve greatness as humans. Exactly right. So you might say it's human nature to hide who you really are from people. Therefore, the warning here is that we, we need to be better than that. We're trying to overcome the thing that we would generally do because human, because that's what human nature is. Alternatively, human nature is also heralded as something to embrace. So, for example, it's human nature to be cooperative with your neighbors. It's human nature to be altruistic with your resources. And you could certainly point to counterexamples of people doing that. But that would be an example of this is something that we generally do that we want to celebrate because it's awesome that humans do this really cool thing. Or one that I did find that I didn't otherwise plan to discuss was what is unique to humans and seems to be universal to humans is language. And that is something that we would herald maybe as something to celebrate is something that we've developed and defines us. Yeah. And I think too, when you start talking about this, and this is, again, it's kind of a catch all term because people will use this as a way to maybe describe or explain some kind of anomaly or oddity of behavior, maybe as a way to expose that hidden cause, right? So, you know, maybe somebody does something kind of odd or some kind of, maybe there's like 1% of the population that does this thing and they go, well, maybe, maybe it's human nature. It's some kind of like hidden trait or something that has to do with the amalgamation 
that is human nature like that encompasses all the things that humans do and this is one of the weirdest parts about human nature in my opinion is we so we go back and talk about that there's this the way that people talk about human nature is it's either this is something that applies to 100% of all people if they're human beings then this is a thing that characterizes them or this is something that generally applies to most people in most circumstances which is to say that given the these kind of circumstances you're pretty much always going to see this type of behavior or in this particular instance you have the we have this one person who does this one weird thing, and that reveals something about human nature because everyone would be doing it if they weren't able to overcome themselves, and this person just can't. And so you have this like this one person who I'm trying to think of a really good example of what this might be, but like I'm trying to maybe come up with some very strange fetish or I would say like serial killers. There you go. Okay, that works. Yeah. So you have that the you have these exam radical examples. Of people who do things that most people, the vast, vast majority of people do not do, which is kill a whole bunch of other people. And then we look at that and say, there's human nature right there. In this 0.001% example, we're seeing human behavior or a human nature really coming out. And so it's it's almost ironic how much contrast it seems like there is between those ideas within that too like you know kind of discussing like it could be all the population it could be most of the population or it could be this very small percent of the population that explains away whatever it is is explained away with human nature what we find though is that most of the discussion around this is pretty unconcerned with what we could describe as truisms which is i think kind of ironic yeah basically what we're saying is like you know, the discussion is argumentative, not empirical. So no one states that it is human nature to sleep, eat, or breathe, which is something that literally all humans have to do. <laughs> you know, that's right. You know, to survive as a species, we have to do those things. So it, by definition, if you say human nature is something that all humans do, those are things that we would consider human nature, but we don't typically describe it like that. Exactly right. It does seem to be instead this discussion revolves around a little bit more subjective and anecdotal reports of things than it does an actual like clear-cut definition and this actually speaks to part of the reason that i wanted to talk about this is how often i hear people say things like it's human nature and they just make this declaration about something that's happening as being an example of human nature or explaining that person's behavior because it's a thing that happened and i I just can't help but think to myself, I don't even know what argument you're making. Essentially, if you really think about that argument of like, it's just human nature, what you're really saying is they have done something and the thing that they have done happened because they did it. And I'm like, I see circles, guys. <laughs> I feel like you're walking in circles. <laughs> oh, mentalisms. Yeah, it just it doesn't explain anything because it's just saying this is a thing that someone has done. And I'm like, so <laughs> who cares? Do you feel good about that? Right. I'm picturing somebody like like having like a corkboard and they're doing the lines with the yarn, but it's just one big circle. They're just like, one big circle, this, yeah. Yeah, it's just here's how it attaches. And it's just, you, you just, it doesn't get to an explanation. It doesn't give like some kind of satisfactory explanation of what might be going on. It doesn't give anything that is grounded in like some kind of observable event or even not even necessarily that has to be observable, but some kind of causation. It doesn't even get to that. It just goes, hey, they do this because this thing and that's it. And it just really, it's kind of like if you look at spiritual, what is it called? Spiritual gaslighting. When people are like, well, that's, that's kind of, that's God's will. And you're like, but there has to be an explanation for what happened. Like there is something that happened here that is a problem that we have to address. Right. And so you get people that will just, it's like scientific gaslighting where you go or philosophical gaslighting where you go, 
oh, well, that's just human nature. And it's like, that doesn't explain literally anything. And it leaves you with no explanation, but you're supposed to accept it. And I kind of got to wonder, what gives you the authority in this moment? Like, what evidence, what science, what are you drawing on that you can stand there and just proclaim that something that somebody has done is human nature? And everyone's just like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> what yeah, is that? Who you think you are? <laughs> and I mean, I guess... you think you are? To throw ourselves under the bus, on this show, we have made statements about the truisms of human nature that are argumentative, such as humans are social creatures. Now, I don't think that we're speaking from a place of a lack of evidence on that, because we live in cities, and we talk to one another, and we listen to one another. If you are listening to this podcast, that means that you have engaged in some amount of language well enough to have access to podcasts, and if you've been raised around language, that means that you've worked together with somebody at some point to teach you that language, so... There is an element of cooperation that is threaded throughout human civilization, or else we wouldn't have human civilization. But I also could certainly take the the criticism that we aren't necessarily authorities on calling that a human nature type thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, we can recognize, too, that we probably make sweeping generalizations here and there, and we, we definitely do that. But, you know, for the sake of this, like, we always try to go back to grounding it into some kind of evidence, some kind of phenomenon, something that's understandable. And this is just one of those things where we just don't see that. And, and I think as we start talking about this, we, we get into the idea of human nature. We have to talk about some relevant information about that. And a lot of times when we do talk about this idea, like kind of going back to your idea of humans being social creatures in general, a lot, many, if not most of the aspects that are described as human nature tend to be some kind of cultural phenomenon, something that we can observe in the cultural context related to that individual and in their, in their personal experience. Right. And I found there was this sort of article, blog post sort of thing, whatever, written by Dr. Mariana Pogosian. I hope I'm saying that kind of correctly. Dr. Mariana P. And she was writing for Psychology Today, and she interviewed a cultural psychologist named Dr. Stephen Hine, I think is how to pronounce that. I'm probably saying that wrong. H-E-I-N-E is looks like Hine to me. And when she was interviewing him, he pointed out that we're quick to notice differences in one another, especially across cultures, and that culture matters in understanding human nature. And what he said specifically that I liked a lot, Dr. Mariana Pogosian asked him, what are some misconceptions about human nature? And his response is that what he's learned is that human nature is not inside us. That's sort of a misconception is that this idea of human nature is something inside us. What he said instead is that we come into this world ready to acquire our nature from the culture we're born into. And I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, certainly people could argue about how our neurology is set up and how our genes are set up and what those things are likely to prepare us for. But if we're talking about human nature with respect to the, again, those proclivities and oddities and attitudes and behaviors, those are things that we're going to acquire from our culture that we're raised in. They go on to kind of talk about this in a little bit more and the idea of universal truths. They talk about what's included in human nature as kind of a universal truth. And so one of the things they say is we learn from one another and adapt to cultural norms. And there's actually quite a bit of science to support that idea, right? Like, right. you know, our language is part of a cultural norm following laws, following social rules. Those are all part of cultural norms that we experience that we kind of learn and adapt to as we go. And if we move to another culture, then we often will then adopt the new cultural norms that are part of that culture that we're now in. And so there's you know, plenty of examples of that. 
Yeah. Another point they make is that we value close relationships. And while people may not value, like maybe they outright say they value those things, we do share a lot of close relationships with folks. We do have that as part of our social creature habit. We demonstrate similar emotions. So you can kind of see consistent affects across the majority of population, like anger, happiness, joy. Like you can see that pretty consistently. And we have similar personality structures is something to discuss. We can get into personality again at some point in time, personality episode part two. Well, and that one actually speaks to the whole Barnum effect of how a lot of swindlers, hucksters, and things like zodiac signs, astrology, fortune telling, even a lot of things where it's uh, magicians and whatnot, part of how those work is by leaning on the fact that we most people have more things in common than they do different. And so they can exploit what is pretty common about most people to sort of trick you. And for some people do that to steal your money and some people do that for entertainment. But either way, that's part of how, how that works is, the, is leaning on the fact that we tend to have ver- fairly similar personality structures. Oh my God. I'm so naive. I got duped out of so much money in New Orleans. Oh yeah. A palm reader. A palm reader. Okay. Yeah. Had a palm reader and I was like blown away. I was like, well, of course, of course that's true. How my favorite thing she told me I had thinker's hands. Like yesterday. I was actually there for a behavior analysis conference. So it was with, within the last 10 years. Okay. Probably like five years ago. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. I've been hesitant to go to them because even though they're kind of fun and like I get why it would it's fun to support that i also just don't want to because it's so anti-scientific but that's kind of fun it was actually a lot of fun like i had a good experience with it but she told me i had thinker's hands so she told me i had a job that wasn't hard working like <laughs> manual labor which is like well you can tell because i don't have any calluses on my hands so that makes sense so i kind of derived that later but she said some wacky stuff and i was like that doesn't make any sense i don't know why you know that thing but again it's sweeping generalizations yeah Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And another point they make about universal truth is that we are social and care about our place in the community or in a community. To unpack that, you can kind of talk about what does care mean in terms of, you know, do I care about what I contribute? Do I care about what my place is? Do I care about getting my fair share? Like, what does it look like with me being in the community and kind of like what my role is? And and so, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can unpack all that and, and kind of go in some different directions. But these are general truths that we find about humans and you can kind of apply different lenses to that. Right. And I think he actually intentionally left it broad and, and didn't really define what care meant or, or talk about like what the placement, because I can speak looking at someone who is, let's say, a iconoclast or someone who is sort of rebels against society. And you might say, well, they clearly don't care. And I would argue, in fact, that they do care. And that's why you see this rebellious behavior. If they didn't care, they'd simply withdraw and be you know, be gone. And some people do that. And I think that even in those cases, they care about their place because they feel like they don't have one. And so I think that leaving it broad, as he did, allows it to apply more readily to specific examples and how helpful that is scientifically, I think, is worth debating. But yeah, the final point that he makes here in this interview is that human nature is both good and bad. He says that we are complicated and multifaceted, and we tend toward doing what we believe to be good for most people. And so I just really like pretty much everything he said made a lot of sense to me when I was reading it. And I also think that it's he's speaking from a place of experience. And I, I don't know. I just agree with a lot of what he had to say. And it feels good, too. I mean, it feels like, you know, it's not him saying human beings are inherently evil 
and we have to fight back the demons on a daily basis. Like he's, you know, he's saying like we tend to move towards that good peak of human behavior in all those different traits. And, and so for the most part, human beings are are okay. Like we're okay. We share some stuff. We're trying. Yeah, we're trying to do good. You know, we're. And I also agree. I like the point that he made that we're complicated because. And I was just thinking about this today. Looking back at there are some things that people have written or done that were really insightful and helpful. And then it turns out that they were also kind of maybe a creep or they said some other really inappropriate things. And I've been thinking about how do we weigh the relative contributions of someone when it turns out that they did these other things that were bad because because people are so complex. And it's like, I don't I feel like I don't have to or want to agree with someone 100 percent across the board. And I also don't want to necessarily damn or condemn everything that they've ever done if they do one thing that's bad. But I was just thinking about it kind of depends, I think, on the weight of their other contributions and the relative significance and weight of the thing that they've done that we would condemn as being taboo. But and I know this is a totally different conversation, but it just makes me think like humans are these complex. We're complex. Like nobody is 100 percent one way or the other. And as he said, we're both good and bad. We do both good and bad things. And it's a useful point to continue to, to reiterate that people can be more than one thing. And that when you really take in the context of the whole person, it's hard to feel complete anger toward most people, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's like R. Kelly. Wow. It's very complex. Like, did a lot of bad things. But I believe I can fly really made Space Jam what it was. <laughs> okay obviously obviously i'm being flippant okay i was like on that (laughs) that's a great example you really wanted to challenge me on that and you did a great job (laughs) you're like here i'm gonna agree with you by disagreeing with you so i agree that while i think i believe i can fly is both a good song and well performed and made a great contribution to space jam although i don't know how well that movie has held up it hasn't yeah that's kind of what i was afraid of (laughs) i almost want to actually use those kind of things and say like i'm not going to support this particular piece of this artist's contribution anymore because in doing so i feel like i support that person and more importantly by not supporting it i feel like i'm making a statement and not necessarily that i say that that contribution is bad but that i don't want to support that person and so this got so off track (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's a good way of challenging me. Yeah. Well, also, R. Kelly's a bad example of this. Like, so, I mean, like, for the most part, like, we, there are researchers in our field who have done some pretty poor things and done some pretty heinous things in the public eye, but also have contributed really great things to the science. And so it's one of those things where to damn somebody simply because they made a few mistakes is, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to try to accomplish and so understanding that humans are complex okay that's really the point of all this is like humans are complex humans are multifaceted humans mess up but that doesn't negate the good that they do too so it's important to kind of take it with some like what do they say hold it lightly you know the idea of like holding that lightly and kind of like learning how to navigate that and and reconcile that and being able to hold multiple ideas in your head at the same time yeah it's tough let's just not put any people up on pedestals we'll take their accomplishments and their contributions one at a time and evaluate their relative value and otherwise except for one person i'm going to introduce later people don't get to be on on pedestals as superhumans and whatnot there's 
They're, ju- they're just all going to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Agreed. Okay. There was another person I found that was really talking about human nature, Donald E. Brown. And he wrote that human nature is universal consistencies about humans across cultural, ethnographic, and historical surveys. And essentially that you could categorize human nature into four sort of domains, one that's social, cultural, behavioral, and mental. And he gives specific examples of those. And I actually thought that the way he talked about this was one of the more useful because he sort of talks about how a example of cultural human nature is toward language. Or he talks about how in mental human nature is things like we tend to both think ahead toward things that we're planning on in the future and recollect things that we've done in the past. And we use that to form sort of both who we are and what we're going to do. He actually was one of the ones that I I found who talked most about human nature in terms of actual things that we know about humans, like we eat, sleep and breathe. And and that those are sort of the universals, but he did so talking about these other sort of behavioral social things that we do that I thought was cool. It's a nice way to provide some kind of maybe anchoring to the subject that is right. inherently nebulous. Like I think that's a nice way to start conceptualizing this a little bit. Right. And then we found some quote unquote studies that point to how there's these all these studies that show that there are things that humans do that illuminate the evil of human natures. And so let's just go through each of these. One of them was that we dehumanize quote unquote out groups or minorities. You can see this in specific behavior, but that's, there are some studies that say that we do that, that this is an evil thing. And while I don't want to say that it's not evil, what I don't want to, what I don't know that is useful here is to say that this is definitely human nature. Right. Agreed. Yeah. I think we do tend to cluster in social groups And then once that group is solidified, then joining that group and leaving that group are kind of a big deal. But that's about as far as I would push that. I don't know that there's it's human nature to say that we dehumanize our groups necessarily. Another one is that we experience schadenfreude, which we did an episode. Well, actually an episode on. We talked about the concept of schadenfreude in our episode on apologies. And do you recall what this means, Shane? I honestly don't. Okay, this is the German word for the fact that we tend to feel good when we witness other people suffering, especially when we feel that it is deserved, or also that we might feel like mirth at seeing people suffer like when they fall down and that sort of thing. Okay, that makes sense. I could track with that. Exactly. And so this is an example of human nature is that we can celebrate in other people's failures and that this has been observed as early as four years old. And that that's an example of a human nature. Again, I just don't know how much I would really chalk this up to be calling it human nature specifically. Yeah. So another one, too, that we talk about is this idea that we believe people, quote, get what they deserve. You know, like the idea of justice and celebrate punishment when we believe it is deserved. And again, I think that that is very specific to cultural norms. I don't think that that is a human nature type of thing. And there are lots of people who don't like to see other people be punished for things, just generally speaking. Yeah. You know, I think at most it's like if you pose a threat, then we need to put you in a situation where you can no longer pose that threat. Not that we want to see you punished, just that we want to see that threat diminished. Right. Another study or based on some studies is that people are dogmatic and pursue only evidence that supports their opinion. And we talked about this a little bit in our episode. Which what episode was this on? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Okay. Well, we talked about this in the past. And <laughs> this essentially is just, this is a human bias sort of thing of like, we often see that people can tune out any evidence that contradicts themselves. 
whether or not that's human nature is debated and also whether or not that's evil i think is debatable so right another one too and this is definitely something that's not like first of all has a whole there's a lot to unpack with this one but also not necessarily evil is that we would rather electrocute ourselves than spend time with our own thoughts that's very specific yeah did you hear about the study when it came out no Oh my God, this is the dumbest thing. Okay, so essentially what happened, and I actually, I don't know if the study is what did it. It was the press release about it that was the problem. That they put people in a room and they like gave them a thing that they could shock themselves and then they gave, that, that was it. They just left them there. And what you saw was there was a bunch of people who eventually tried the shock. They tried to shock themselves. And what some concluded from that was that they couldn't stand to be alone with their thoughts, so they shocked themselves. Whereas I was like, the conditions under which like you put someone in a room where there's virtually nothing to do, they're bored out of their minds and they probably have never been shocked before. And they might be thinking, I wonder what it feels like. I wonder if it hurts that bad. Maybe it doesn't really hurt. I wonder if this even does what it says that it's going to do. Right. And like any of those are reasonable thoughts to have when you don't know the nature of the experiment. And then you shock yourself just to find out. Like I definitely know that given the opportunity to shock myself, I would shock myself no matter how bored I was just to figure out, just to like understand what it felt like. Because I'm like, I don't, I don't know if this really hurts that bad. And I'm not right. That's not hundred percent true because I have shocked myself and I know that it sucks, but like, I'd probably do it again. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think about that all the time. Like where I've done things. I'm like, I wonder what that feels like. Oh, that didn't feel good. I wonder if I could tolerate more of that. You know, there's so many ways to go about that. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to say, first of all, that that is human nature. Second of all, that it's evil. But third, that like, like to ignore the basic conditions in which that experiment might have occurred. Right. Like that to me is just, it's observing the parsimonious explanation for what happened, which is literally people, human beings. I, I mean, this is going to be something that's sweeping generalization, but if you watch kids and observe kids there, they tend to be curious about the environment around them and see what happens, right? Like you watch kids like play with water and you watch them kind of like how they interact with toys and, you know, and, and so there's all these different things that happen. And so why wouldn't we expect that to happen as adults either? Yeah. And how would you possibly arrive at the conclusion that the motivation was the thoughts that they needed to get away from? Right. You didn't control for that at all. You didn't put in any kind of variables that would show that that wasn't the case. You didn't put any kind of kind of variables to manipulate that so that you could definitely rule that in as a potential option. So I, I that one just doesn't make any sense at all. Right. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, me either. Another one is that we are vain and overconfident. And this essentially is speaking to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that we tend to overestimate our abilities and things. Calling that vanity and overconfident, maybe overconfidence is appropriate, but calling that vanity, maybe. Uh, honestly, I think it's just, it is a skill to evaluate how well you can actually perform at something where you don't know what the criteria is for that performance or you haven't done it very often. And so, yes, a lot of people tend to overestimate how well they'll do at something, and that is a tendency that is observed. But again, as we pointed out, calling that human nature, I don't know. And certainly evil, probably not really. I mean, it's just a, this is an efficiency of how we behave. And if we were to chronically underestimate ourselves, then we'd never put ourselves in a position to attempt to succeed at something where we didn't already know that we were going to be successful. Right. Absolutely. And then another one too, they talk about is this idea that we are moral hypocrites, right? And this gets attributed to the idea of fundamental attribution error. 
again, I just think it's, it's to me, it looks like depending on what's available, like how I want to act is like, you know, where I'm going to contact the most reward. You know, that's a lot of what I see there. It's like, it's not necessarily that we're moral hypocrites. We might just make decisions based on what's going to get the most reward in that moment. And yeah, it's just thinking about, we'll do an episode on fundamental attribution error at some point in the future, but really just thinking about like, all you have to go on is in your immediate environment and you're just going to make whatever choice makes the most sense to you in that moment and so like if other people are not doing that then like you don't have their context so you can't appraise it as well and that doesn't mean that you're evil that just means that you just don't know everything in the universe right right all right another one that they mentioned is that we're trolls and they're pointing to the fact here that when we increase anonymity, so when people wear Halloween masks, as an example, or any kind of mask, when people are masked and in mobs, when people are, and primarily and mostly, what they're pointing to is when people are, are online, they'll say and do things that they would never do if they had the accountability of people knowing who they were. Yeah. And while I think that they're like, obviously, there are examples of that happening. I think there are a very easy to un- way to unpack that without having to lean in on that being both to being either human nature or it being evil. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there are just simpler explanations for all of this stuff as we go through. And I imagine as you're listening to this, you probably can pinpoint a couple different simple explanations for this, and rather than attributing it to some kind of overarching human characteristic. Exactly right. Another one is we tend to select ineffective leaders with psychopathic traits. <sighs> that hits too close to home. Yeah. I don't even want to talk about that one. (laughs) Yeah. I have a friend of mine who made a a really great analogy to this is the idea that Burke, it's the Burke Hicks theory. It's based on alien where you have the one person who's the the company man who doesn't know what they're doing and they don't have the human beings in their best interest. And they make the decisions that get the human beings killed. And that's Burke. And we keep electing Burke's. And we need a Hicks, a a person that's for the people and is really like humble enough that they don't want the power, but they're the reluctant leader and they're not psychopathic. They just, they just need to be in a position where they can help make decisions that are good for the people. So we need more Hicks, less Burks. It's pretty well thought out. So, well, we keep picking Burks. So (laughs) yeah, we got to stop doing that. Anyway, I'm going to move on from that. (laughs) (laughs) The last one here is that we tend to select mates who are narcissistic and have dark personality traits. And this is just, I don't even know if this is based on a study, but more on the fact that there is the idea that when people appear mysterious, oftentimes we are drawn to them as being sort of exotic or different. And I think that honestly, I don't know that A, we'd actually be select them permanently, but B that what is appealing about that it could be better explained by just other psychological phenomenon than the fact that we are evil and looking for other darkness to match our own. Yeah, I feel like that comes from a theological realm somewhere. You might be right. I'm sure there's a bent that we could probably find in there in that spiritual realm. So the last point really is that a lot of these discussions about human nature, they tend to focus on human bias and they tend to be selected from weird populations. And do you know the, the acronym weird? I didn't until I was reading the notes. Okay. (laughs) This actually comes up quite a bit, especially when we're talking about like social psychology and weird stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And that, that means that most of the time, most of these studies are being done with people who live in Western countries. A lot of them, Europe and the United States, they're educated. Most participants are college students, like almost all of them. It's industrialized nations that they're rich, relatively speaking, and that they're from a democratic country and that those 
even though they make up a tiny, tiny fraction of the population of the world, like, I don't know, 1% or something, or 5%, 10%, something small, they represent over 80% of the research that's being done to talk about human nature. So it's like, we're going to survey 1,000 college students or 10,000 college students, or let's just go with a million. Let's just survey a million college students in the United States. What does that say about human nature of someone who lives in the middle of Africa in a tribe there, or someone who grows up in a fundamentalist sect in the Middle East, or someone who is raised in the forests of Russia, you know? Right. Can we really extrapolate from that population to, to those other populations, even with a gigantic end size? And I think the answer is pretty obviously no, not when it comes to things like the very cultural bias human examples. And so it's hard to point to any of these things that people do that are all from these weird populations and then say, this is human nature. Right. It's just, it simply does not make sense. I mean, you'll see this a lot in, in just as a general problem in research, especially like social sciences, where just the demographics are not representative. Exactly. They're just not. Weird wasps. Weird it's all. wasps. <laughs> as opposed to murder hornets i'd rather take the quirky wasp than the murder hornet i don't know the weird wasps are pretty annoying too they can be yeah anyway <laughs> let's move on before we completely <laughs> alienate everyone so there's this other story that i think is really helpful to tell that is just addressing the sort of cynical view of human nature that people are aggressive and will descend in- into chaos as soon as we're like given the opportunity to do so and that we're sort of only governed by dictatorship like leaders who will hand down swift punishments and justice, you know, to keep people in line. It sounds so outlandish when you think about it. (laughs) And I mean, I think that it might influence some of the policies that governments have put in place in certain places where they have these sort of tyrannical leaders, because their justification is if we don't rule with the heavy hands, then You'll beat each other up and you'll destroy everything and things will descend into chaos. And that was sort of the picture painted that was presented in the story, The Lord of the Flies book, right? Yeah, what a great story, too. I remember loving this book when I was a kid. I mean, it is. Like, it's a really good story. And so, spoiler for those who, I guess, have this on their list of things to read or watch and just haven't gotten around to it yet. But in The Lord of the Flies, essentially, there is a group of kids they get marooned on or stranded on this island when I think when a plane goes down is the setup on that. I think that's what it is. Okay. And anyway, they try and institute some kind of democracy and and build this like group of people working together and it pretty rapidly descends into madness as they break off into warring factions and they're paranoid about this mythical beast on the island. Anyway, point being that like three of them end up dying mostly from the aggression of the other ones. And it is this chaotic mess of kids who not only can't really work together, but it illustrates that if we were to put humans in, in this position, that that's what they would do. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because it is so impactful and you hear it referenced so much, the story itself and pop culture references like you, I feel like I hear all the time. Yeah. We thought it was a really great way to kind of look at this from the perspective of like, is this reflective of human nature, right? Going into the idea of we're talking about human nature. We, we, we think this is kind of an important story because people do make the assumption that we will just go 
berserk basically whenever <laughs> you know whenever there's lawlessness right like that human beings will just simply just be totally chaotic yeah and fortunately you know we would never conduct this experiment in real life of like well let's just let's find out if that's what would really happen fortunately we don't have to because there is a recent story that was published that's actually not that recent it's fairly old but there's a real life situation in which this happened yeah, so in June of 1965, there were six boys that went out and they stole a fishing vessel. Also, I think it's great to call anything a vessel from now on. <laughs> Sounds like a well, euphemism. Well, I, I gotta, I'm going to take, take the vessel to the grocery store. <laughs> That's great. I like it. And they were caught in a storm and marooned on a small island. And so what was really cool about this, though, is that they started to work together. The total opposite of what happened in Lord of the Flies. Yeah, exactly. So with survival being their their key thing, they struggled to have clean water and to have food and everything. But on this island on which they were stranded, and they were even stuck at sea with an unworking boat for like a week or something. So that was pretty rough. And then they land on this. And that's like, that's an even more very, very tight, confined space. You got to imagine how difficult it was to be just stranded on that boat together. And I, I wouldn't say the ages, but they were the oldest one was 16 and the youngest one was 13. Oof. Yeah. Like these are, they're fairly young, you know? So anyway, they're stranded on this island and they worked together to build a garden. They took turns tending to a fire, which they had built. Obviously, they could use for a lot of things, but one of the main things was to be able to signal boats or passing aircraft with smoke and whatnot. And they even built themselves a little gym and like a badminton court on this island of theirs. You know, I was thinking about this, too, when we are talking about the idea of maybe getting stranded. Like, I don't know that I would build a badminton court. (laughs) That's fair. I don't know. But that's great that they did that. So as part of the story, too, one of the boys fell and broke his leg and the others actually helped set it and bandage it. Then later, kind of after they were rescued, spoiler alert, they were rescued, a doctor remarked about how impressed that they were, the doc- how impressed the doctor was, about how well he did in aiding the boys healing and convalescence. So they did a really great job setting his leg. They were helpful. And, and that's just kind of, again, the opposite of what happened with Lord of the Flies. Right. And you might imagine that there's going to be instances in which they maybe didn't get along very well or they disagreed about something. But what was interesting is that in this little society, if you can call it that, that they constructed, if they ever fought with one another, then those that were involved in that disagreement were placed in a, in a quote unquote timeout until they had, I guess, time to sort of cool down, which I, I think is just the coolest thing. Yeah. I mean, it's especially because that's so much better than just throwing somebody out to sea or deciding that that person's you know they're they're off the island you know like i think that's a great way to kind of help govern you know maybe maybe what they were dealing with yeah sometimes i wish i could put some of members of our society in timeout there are many people that need a timeout right now (laughs) too many yeah and there are many people who get put in timeout unfairly for long periods of time (laughs) yes disproportionately put in timeout So as you look at kind of the story, one of the things that's really important to note, too, is that they were on the island for 15 months before they were found. So that's quite a long time for a group of kids in their formative years to survive that long and really make that work. So the conclusion of this impromptu experiment is that human nature is not so sadistic and violent after all. And in fact, we are remarkably adept at cooperating and working together to help each other. I love it. So in talking about human nature, 
we always got to lean on the behavioral view because this is the most scientific approach to psychology. And from my perspective, we talk about if humans are both good and bad. For me, if it's both, then it's neither. Then we're saying, like, if you're both good and bad, then you're neither good nor bad. You just are. People just are. Right. And I think that we've definitely observed that humans are capable of horrifying atrocities, but they're also capable of tremendous generosity. And the choice between doing something evil or doing something benevolent, that choice, in my opinion, is not human nature. It's circumstantial. It's you're in that moment. You're going to choose between doing one of those two things. And that's going to be based on a lot of your culture and history and where you are in that moment. And when you start thinking about this, when you specifically start thinking about what this all entails, really human nature is just human behavior. It's deterministic. We can study it. We can use objective, empirical, scientific processes. We can apply these different observation methods to understand why people do what they do. When you really get into it, it's like whether it's human nature or not, whether you want to put that label on it, it's still everything that people talk about is some type of behavior. You know, it's like it's human. They did this because it's human nature. Oh, it's in their nature to do this thing. And again, they kind of talk about like doing something they do this they do that they do that and ultimately just comes down to some type of behavior that can be attributed to circumstances in their environment right and so some argue that human nature is not subject to experiences i just i don't understand that point we have no evidence to suggest that this is true and really all the evidence to suggest that human nature is a natural phenomenon that is influenced by cultural circumstances and is something that can therefore be studied and doing so is much more parsimonious than just making something up or relying on a weird study about a single human bias in a very specific arrangement where you interpret what their motives are and you know i think part of it too is as we kind of start talking about this is like when we talk about humans being forced into extreme circumstances or when they're highly inebriated that's supposed to reveal human nature. I just don't think that makes any sense because I feel like if it's human nature and it's consistent across the species, then you would see it when it's necessary, not necessarily in those very extreme circumstances. This is the thing that's one of the most annoying to me that I see all the time is you'll take someone who's like, they're backed into a corner. They are, have no other options and they are desperate. And in the weirdest, most unlikely scenario most extreme situation you could put that person in and then you point to the reaction to that situation and say that's human nature i'm like we don't know the choices that you make in that situation we don't know what they were capable of going in that situation and why would you point to the most extreme circumstance to, to put someone in as a way of isolating human nature that doesn't make any sense to me at all yeah that feels weird. I don't understand even logically how that's supposed to make sense. It's like, let's let's take away everything that makes you you, put you in a situation where you're desperate for your own survival and see what you do and then call that human nature. Like, but why? Like, what what would this person be doing at all other times? Because that seems like that's the human nature part of it. It's the thing that they do that defines who they t- tend to be. Not when we put them in a situation that they've never been in before that is like the most desperate and extreme that it's ever been. Yeah, it's absurd. I don't like it. It'd be like, spoiler alert for the movie 127 Hours, but did you see that movie? (laughs) I did not see that in the movie, but I know the story. Okay. Yeah, it'd be like saying, so we we look at this guy who was trapped under a rock and he decided to saw off his arm to get out of that situation. And we could point to that as an example of human nature. But to say that that shows us human nature is, would be essentially like saying, like, 
people should just cut off their arms just you know whenever you know randomly yeah you just don't go around hacking off your own arm you only do so when it's a situation where you're desperate to do what you're going to do right so calling that human nature is in my opinion nonsense which is ultimately still behavior yeah if i hack off my arm it's still behavior i'm still sawing off my arm that's true one thing that we do keep talking about is like ultimately what they say is the human nature is everything the human species does then human nature is for good or for ill it is either for one of those things like it's for good or for ill it could be for both and that's just not the case it's just more nuanced than that it's just there's just more complexity and it again it goes back to the idea of being multifaceted there's just more to it in each of those circumstances and just because i choose one path or one behavior or engage in a particular behavior in one context doesn't mean that i'll always engage in that behavior in the same context in the future so it's just there's a lot of stuff to unpack within that and to just kind of write it off as this, this dismissive like oh it's just in their nature just doesn't make any sense it just washes out every little bit of nuance that goes into the idea of human behavior yeah and so just to just to reiterate the point that you just made essentially the way that makes the most sense to talk about human nature is it's what humans do what the human species does is human nature all of it and so you can't point to a single example and just say like, oh, that's what human nature is. Because if humans are doing it, then basically it's human nature. And again, you start to see why that starts to become less useful of an idea as we talk about it. Looking at some of the behaviorists, I've, I found one from B.F. Skinner talking about human nature. And he says, quote, what a person is really like could mean what he would have been like if we would have seen him before his behavior was subjected to the action of the environment. We should then have known his quote unquote human nature, end quote. And so I think what he's saying here is like, when we talk about human nature, we're trying to say like, what is this person like? outside of their experience and their context and that weird homunculus of a human does not exist right there has never been a human that was not born into a context of some sort and so we're trying to say this is what their nature would be if they're outside of that but they're never outside of that and so therefore their human nature is all the things they do inside of their context and their culture as you see as we go through this you just see it falling apart like just the more and more we get into this the more and more it falls apart it's just kind of a flimsy explanation for stuff so now another behaviorist that we really appreciate and adore jr cantor talks about human nature and the first point that he makes about human nature is that human nature is cultural and idiosyncratic so we've kind of touched on the point of it being cultural before but this idea of being idiosyncratic also lends itself to the idea which we talked about before which was that we are multifaceted just as a general rule right so Human nature is just, it's very specific to that person, to that circumstance, to that condition. And he says that it can really only be regarded as the traits of a particular person. And and I really like this quote. He goes on to say, quote, There is no such thing as human nature in general, unless indeed one means to symbolize by the term the general differences between humans and infrahuman animals, end quote. And so essentially he's saying like saying that something is human nature unless you're talking about like the specific traits of what they're doing there is not really a general human nature or maybe you're just trying to say that humans are different from other non-human animals in which case cool yeah i mean that's fine enough snakes are not giraffes woo you have that captain obvious moment right yeah aside from the snark i mean that's ultimately what it comes down to like the simplest explanations make the most sense so like he goes on to say, to be scientifically useful, human nature must refer to specific phenomena. So in culture, it is the aggregate total of the repertoire of a person inside their given culture. So the argument could be made that human nature is essentially just 
a set of behaviors, a set of repertoires that occur in a cultural context. The idea that our language, that our social norms, that our laws, that our rules, that are all of our behavior that we account for within a cultural norm becomes part of that individual's human nature. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And there are these misconceptions about human nature that it is innate powers, forces, and capacities of things that drive us. And and this has been exploited and leaned on heavily in many, many examples and discussions about this. And Cantor argues that the reason that people talk about human nature as these innate powers, forces, and capacities is because this is just a way of quickly accounting for the great varieties and complexities of human behavior, but that in doing so, it evades the actual events that shape and influence a person's behavior in their cultural psychology. And so if we try and say that someone did something because of some innate drive inside of them, be it psychological or biological or whatever, then we're ignoring all the factors that we know definitely play a role in that person's and why they did the thing that they did that we're concerned about, because we're instead just leaning on the explanation, that's just a thing that people do, that this person was going to do. Right. And that's scientifically irresponsible, I think, to ignore variables about a particular phenomenon. Especially objective variables that you can quantify and measure. Right. Like to ignore those just means that you are scientifically gaslighting. That's not a real term, but to ignore them is just to ignore the facts like they're just there in your face and you should account for them. So the magazine Psych, you see these authors, Sky Cleary and Massimo Pigliucci. I think that's how you say it. I do think that Sky Cleary, their parents were definitely having fun with their name because their initials are Sky C Cleary. And that sounds (laughs) like they were trying to have fun. Yeah, they knew what they were doing these authors, they argue essentially that human nature is how humans are fundamentally different from other species. And we overcome our biological reactions and behave within the constraints of human nature. Thus it does exist and is critical to the development of philosophy. When we start thinking about this though, you start thinking about this idea. It's like, you know, maybe we have some behavioral repertoires that don't exist in nature for other species, right? So we don't have the ability, or maybe other species don't have the ability for language and for societies in the same way that we do, or, you know, just the, those things. But to call it human nature is, again, still a set of behaviors to me. And like, this is just such a loose argument for wanting to call something and package it in this nice, neat little way to make us feel more special than we maybe are. Yeah, so I think in this particular article, they were essentially just trying to say that human nature is is a thing and it's important. And their reason is exactly the reason that Cantor pointed out. So he said, unless we mean to essentially that there are general differences between humans and non-human animals, like I suppose you could talk about human nature that way. And that's basically what they said, is that humans are fundamentally different from other species because we can... One of the things is that we can overcome our biological reactions to things. And so to that point, I'm sort of like, okay, I mean, so again, it just comes down to sort of how you define it and what you are choosing to call human nature, because if you just want to say human nature is how we're different from animals, then sure, human nature is a thing. Congratulations. If instead you want to talk about like specific instances of human behavior as being human nature or not, then you have to account for basically if it's human behavior, then it's human nature. Agreed. Cool. That's pretty much all I had on this really again. And the reason we do these take homes is because the main point here in all of this research is just to say that human nature is a term that has no clear definition beyond just sort of talking about the aggregate sum of what is universally true about humans. And mostly it seems to be with respect to 
the arguable features of what humans do, or let's say the descriptive features of what humans do. The second take-home point that I would specifically look at here is this idea that whenever we discuss this stuff, we want to look at how this is scientifically useful. And ultimately, for the definition or the term of human nature to be scientifically useful, it has to refer to specifics or specific phenomenon. And ultimately, when people use this term, they don't really describe a specific phenomenon. They it, It's described, it's this generalized term that's used to explain away something that probably has more concrete explanation. So what we see is that the idea of calling something human nature or the idea of calling something a part of our species is missing the point of what's happening on those idiosyncratic levels. So in referring to these specifics, in doing so, we're likely to turn studies of culture or these studies on human nature into studies of culture, into studies of behavior. And we're probably more likely to understand a phenomenon a lot better rather than just kind of writing it off as something that's innate in the species. So if you run into somebody who says that people do X because it's human nature, then on the one hand, definitely question their authority and be like, who are you to like make this claim and what's your evidence? And also, like, they're probably wrong in a way by saying like they do this because of human nature, and they're, they're right in saying that human nature is all things that we do, and therefore this is a thing that they have done and is therefore human nature. So... You could argue with them if you want to, <laughs> or just just know that like that's a useless explanation, and don't don't rely on this. Like if if you are find yourself in a position where you're trying to explain what someone is doing because that's human nature, just don't look for the relevant variables. Look for the what were the influencing factors and the outcomes of that behavior that could possibly better account for why that person has done what they've done. Exactly. Anything else from you? Nope. That sums it up for me. All right. Cool. Well, let's do a quick listener mail. This one comes from Regina M and she said, and this is with respect to our board game episode. She said, Hey guys, just finished your episode about tabletop games. And I have a suggestion about a year ago, my sisters and I stumbled across the game villainous. It's published by Ravensburger games and is based on various Disney villains. It's for two or more players. The original game is for up to six, but you can keep adding to it with expansions and it's described best as a race to the end game for casual players. Well, she goes on to describe the, the various sort of mechanics of the game and how it works. But she says, I've played with friends for happy hour game night and have played with my nieces and nephews at family gatherings. And she says that I like the game because being from Disney fanatics, we find it insanely enjoyable to play characters we know so well. And also that it can be played uh, across those different groups and that her family is very competitive so they can spend hours playing and replaying the game and said that each round can last 30 to 90 minutes. She finishes with, if you haven't tried it, I highly recommend it. If you have played it, I'd love to know what you think. So first, I definitely want to say thank you so much for writing in and I appreciate the suggestion. I actually have not played Villainous, but I've seen it around quite a bit. And so I appreciate the suggestion because it just never really occurred to me to sit down and try it. So now I will. I've never seen it, so I'll have to check it out. I'm a big Disney dork, so... This sounds right up your alley, then. Oh, my God. I'm I'm there. Yeah. It's both competitive, and it's Disney, and you get to play as villains. Like, this is right in Shane's wheelhouse. Yeah. Doctor Doom is my favorite Disney villain. There you go. Awesome. All right. Shall we move on to recommendations? Recommendations. 
All right. So my recommendation is the, this is a two volume set of books called The Scientific Evolution of Psychology by J.R. Cantor. This is largely a book on the history of psychology, and he spends quite a bit of time also talking about, can you have a science of a history of psychology? And if so, what would that entail? And I just think it's extremely well-written and very well-constructed in his arguments, and I just highly recommend those books. I can't wait to pick up this book, or this two-volume set. I need to. It's, it's something I need to add to my ever-growing library of books. Should. So my recommendation this week is a documentary. Watched it last night, and it's not anything that's groundbreaking or mind-blowing, but it's like an interesting piece of culture that is just a really fun watch, really interesting watch, just kind of give you like a history of the United States a little bit. And it's called Circus of Books. It's on Netflix. Have you seen this yet? I have not even heard of it. So basically, it's about this bookstore that existed in LA for about 30 years, and it was this family-owned bookstore that was the main proprietor for gay pornography in the United States at a time where pornography was illegal. You could not ship it across state lines. Like all this stuff was going on. And the family was like this deeply traditional family that kind of picked up this bookstore as a, uh, like kind of a means to an end. Like they weren't really like, we're going to get into gay porn. It was like, this is going to be how we make our livelihood right now while we are kind of in between jobs. It's just really interesting to see kind of like what it meant to the community, how important these folks were for the community, what they did for just kind of like how they got involved with the feds. Like there's all kinds of stuff that happens with it. It's a really fun, nice, easy watch. Is this like a, a like a speakeasy for gay pornography? That was what was so interesting. It was it was like out in the open. Wow. That's awesome. It was out in the open and it was, it was, you know, it opened in the seventies. And what's really cool about it too, is the documentary is done by the daughter of the family. Cause the kids didn't know until they got older. That's awesome. Well, I definitely need yeah. to check that out. It was just a really interesting kind of like slice, very specific. Like I said, nothing groundbreaking or nothing that's going to like blow your mind, but just a fun watch. It's just kind of an interesting look at that history. That's right. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Well, if you have anything to say about Netflix documentaries or J.R. Cantor, or if you are a huge human nature buff or you like philosophy or you have anything to say pro or con about how we talked about human nature we'd love to hear from you so please write us in you can reach us on our various social media platforms email us at info at wwd wwd podcast where you'll probably be dealing with me if you want to talk to shane directly he's pretty easy to reach on facebook mm-hmm. and i believe on twitter Oh, also Instagram is a place that we're easy to find. And so, yeah, I think that's all we got. Anything else from you? Nope, that's it. All right. Thanks for listening. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.